Yo, yo, I'm Jovan Buha from The Athletic. This episode is the season finale of season one of Stargazing. For this episode, we wanted to look back on all of the advice that was shared by our seven guests, how they went from dreamers to doers, professionals at the top of their field. Everyone needs a spark. And for celebrity fashion designer Rich Fresh, the creator behind the Henry mask, his spark was from a crush on a cheerleader. So... It's an interesting story. I think I feel like they've made movies about this. You know, I'm I'm in Little Rock, which is not a fashion forward place. It's just Little Rock. And a super nerdy kid, real quiet, real shy, super insecure. But you know, you know, a nice kid, real smart. I've just always had a thing, like my whole life, I've always been able to distinguish good quality from bad quality. Uh, my mom would tell me I used to go in the stores and I would compare clothes and I would notice the stitching and notice that this one is of a higher quality because of the stitch. So my brain's always been on something like that. Even as this kid who like looks terrible, dresses terrible, doesn't really think too highly of himself, I always looked at like the prettiest girls. It was like, you know, if I'm going to look at a girl, it's going to be the prettiest girl. And if I can't get the prettiest girls, all good. I'm just going to keep my focus in that space. So this girl just happened to be the prettiest girl at the school, in my opinion. She was she was a black cheerleader. She was just really cool, but she was like nice to me. You know, was, middle school was not like the greatest thing ever, but she was super cool. Like she was always cool. She was always nice. And it wasn't like a crush, like a, a crush on the person as much as it was a crush on the role she played. Got it. Like she the, was the, the thought of her? Girl, you know what I'm or, yeah. But just yeah. the it girl. It could have okay. been anyone, but just like the it girl, the one that's the least attainable. Got it. Um, so my brain was just focused on like, hmm, how do you impress the least attainable one? Then turns out, you know, I'm really good at math. And so I ended up tutoring her. I, I got selected by a teacher to tutor her in math. I was like, oh, this is not even real. And it was on like a one-on-one situation, like, you know, private classroom. And it was for, you know, a few weeks. So we're doing this one-on-one thing. And before we get started, you know, half of my brain is like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm actually finna be in the class with, you know what I'm saying? So let me see, you know, how I can... What kind of slick shit I can say to make her like me? And then part of me was like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Like, that's not the goal. Like, that's not the goal. Don't do that. That's going to make her feel uncomfortable. That's stupid. Like, that's not the goal. She has more value than that. You're not. You're going to lose if you do that dumb shit. Here's the value. She knows she's a pretty girl. She's the girl that you would want to go after. Correct? Yeah. Find out what she knows about girls like her. What do girls like her actually look for so you stand a chance with them? So my brain was just thinking more strategic than temporary satisfaction. It was like, okay, long term, what can I gain from this experience? And I just asked her, like, hey, I'm going to put you up on all the math stuff. I just need you to, like, tell me a bit about girls. Tell me what girls like. Tell me what they're into. Tell me what a guy like me would need to do to get a girl in your position. All right. Not you, but someone like you. Just tell me the things that y'all pay attention to because I'm clearly fucking up and um she was like oh cool you know what i'm saying and it was just very comfortable it was a comfortable exchange and just every day she was just like tell me this little thing uh girls like guys who do this they like guys who play sports so i went and i tried out for all the sports didn't make none of them so i came back and i was like that didn't work she was like hmm well girls also like guys who do this and i was like all right cool let me try that that didn't work and i come back like damn that didn't work either she's like damn and it was just the last day of our um tutoring session she was like did anything work and i was like man nothing she was like damn you suck i was like <laughs> i know <laughs> she was like you know it was on something like damn you're pretty damn pathetic but i had given her all you know i had given her the value like she understood the math and she was like hmm you know now that i think about it i think if you dress better i think that would do it for you i think that's all you really need 
just dress better. I think girls like you. You're a nice guy. Yeah, just dress better. And I was like, what's that called? She said, it's called fashion. I said, <laughs> okay, cool. Let me check it out. And that's it. But for some of the experts we interviewed, their life path was not always evident from the start. Ronnie 2K is best known as the face of the 2K video game franchise. But before he got on that path, he was in law school trying to become the next Jerry Maguire. Like most college students, like you have to pick a major. And unless you're like a doctor, engineer, lawyer, you're kind of like, I eh, don't really know what I want to do with my life. Uh, but it's, it's heavy expectation. I was from a Brown family. So there was like, you know, everybody was a doctor or a business owner or an engineer. You know, like those are the, the typical things. But I always loved sports. Like I just could not get away from it. So I was like, you know, if I'm going to be a lawyer, if I'm going to go to postgraduate uh, education, I'm going to do it in sports. And Jerry Maguire was uh, <laughs> the inspiration there. But, uh, you know, for for years, like, I was trying to figure it out like most people. Finally, I settled on, um, you know, I had enough credit to go to law school. So I took my LSAT, got a really great score, and then got into Columbia Law and went to Columbia Law for nine, nine weeks and hated my life. It was, like, <laughs> awful. I just didn't think law was going to be what I thought it was going to be. I picture you know like the movies i picture you know like a lot of the the things that partners do watching suits or something you know mm -hmm. um and uh it, it wasn't that it, not that i wasn't dedicated to it but i wasn't passionate the way i was passionate to sports right so like i got an opportunity right after uh i took a break i was like i'm gonna take a break and i went to work, work for a law firm to make sure i wasn't wrong with my decision but at the same time i went to work for a women's basketball team in san diego and was working like 80 hours a a week, which I do regularly now at 2K, but uh, just no thrill in it. And then, but the basketball team, which I was volunteering and, you know, not making anything, I was just, I loved. I, I ran their game day operations. Minor league sports were so much fun because your role was so important. You, were, you wore so many hats. And so then when I came over to 2K, coincidentally, 10 minutes from where I grew up, which is pretty crazy to think about, it sort of had the same mentality. You know, we were the underdog. We were the, the startup, you know, like at the time we didn't, we weren't the majority leader in the basketball category in any category really uh it was just a few years out of the, you know the game was made out of a our develop like our lead developers garage and but i really believed in the people there the heads of our studio are just incredible the, everybody that works on uh the game you know very dedicated it's a labor of love I, and that's what I, I saw commonality when i went to 2k i was like these guys love sports as much as i do they love making games i i feel like this is a place where that that could have a lot of success Sometimes, following your passion means you have to uproot your life and go straight to the epicenter of culture. Vince the Barber is now one of the best-known barbers in the world. And to become that, he had to move to Los Angeles from his home in Toronto to grow his business. And in Toronto at the time, there's only so much you could do. Bosch was the biggest star. Drake was on the come up. And you're not too many celebrities coming in and out of the city. Not at that time. Mm -hmm. Not like it is now. But So then I just thought to myself, like, how can I do more of this? You know, and I'm thinking... Miami, Vegas, then LA. And obviously LA is the land of opportunity. You know, there's celebrities in and out of there, athletes coming all the time. So it was just a goal of mine at that time. Like, okay, three to five years, I'm going to make that a goal and try to make that happen before I open up my own shop. I felt like if I open up my shop in Toronto, that was it. Like, I kind of felt like I can't open up and then leave. So I was like, let me try LA out and see, you know, if it's, if it's for me or not. That way I know, like, I'm not living with no regrets, you know what I mean? Like, I could go down here, if it worked out, it works. If it doesn't, at, at least I know I tried, and I could go home, open up shop, and I'm good. So I was like, you know what, let me um, let me just take that leap of faith, come out here, try it out. And I didn't know what to expect. You know, I just gave myself 
a list of goals and like three to five years, I want to accomplish this, this and that. Yeah, I came out here and when I moved out here, it was the same year Bosch got traded mm-hmm. to Miami. So he went to Miami, I went to LA and I just told him like, yo, tell all your NBA homies I'm out here. You know, I'm just trying to connect and network. Obviously on my list of goals was to cut it, uh, a Laker. I didn't care who it was, a rookie, you name it. I'll just, I just want to get in there. And then obviously network, network my way to like the top dogs, you know? And so I came out here, I started cutting the rookies, um, Devin Ebanks, and I forgot their character, I think it was at the time. Okay, throwback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went to the facility, cut them up, and then um, my big star was Meta World Peace. Mm. And with Meta, I was cutting him his whole career as a Laker. And again, it's just, you know, the circle is so small. You know, the industry is small. And so word of mouth and, you know, consistency goes a long way. And so I started cutting him. And then, as you know, every almost every year it was a new team, new players and all that. So same thing. It's just every new person that got traded to the Lakers, I was able to still cut at least, you know, a good handful of them every year till this day. So it's just all word of mouth. And I was able to now, you know, for Meta, build off, off of like other players in the league and then, you know, it is when they get traded, it's even, you know, more and more uh, opportunity to cut other players. So I was able to build a good NBA clientele base off of just starting from that. I, I read that you used to get to the practice facility super early and would sometimes beat Kobe there. Yeah. And because mm-hmm. we, we, we've heard the stories, he's getting there 3, 4, 5 a.m., you know, for his first workout. And then he'll do like a second workout before practice even begins. Uh, what, what was that like? With, with, and what were your interactions like with, with him? Um, with that, it was, you know, cause again, yeah, like you're saying, we've heard stories of him and I was like, how early can this guy really get there? You know? And at that time I was cutting majority of the team, probably half, if not more than half of the team. I had a couple of coaches I was cutting too. So the, my deal with them was practice and game days, mo- ma- mainly game days. I'd come cut half the team before practice of, for those that would come early and then chill, watch practice and then cut the rest after. So, you know, it's a whole day for me. So there's a few times where I would show up and then I see Kobe there already. I'm just like, dude, was he, did he just get here? Did he just finish working out? Or, you know, the first few times he like recognized me, you know, he knew who I was. And then a few other times I'd pull up earlier and he'll call me and damn V you beat me today. You know, Hmm. just little, you know, little conversations with him. And I've never had the, I've had a lot of interaction with him, um, you know how it is. There's like a time and place to take a photo with him. And I've never had one and I didn't get a chance to, but we had, you know, good conversations while he was in the chair. He had his own barber that he's used ever since he got in the league, I think. And, um, till this day, I mean, forever, I'll remember that moment of when we had a talk while he was getting cut. I think I was cutting booze at the time while we were talking and we were just talking about life. And, you know, he kind of told me like everything I'm doing now is for our, you know, the future of our family, our kids. And like, their generation and just building like an empire for them. And he's like, you know, you're an entrepreneur. What, you know, everything that you're doing now is like, you're on the right path. Hearing that from someone like him is, you know, meaningful and it's bigger than a photo with him. You know what I mean? So moments like that, it's like something I definitely cherish for sure. Just being in LA or New York isn't enough. Milo Frank, marketing director of the H Wood group, explained to us how much he hustled to help build out a client list. 
So when I started, it was literally reaching out to people on Facebook, right? And you know how on Facebook, like the top right corner, there's like so-and-so's birthdays today. So like I would see that and I'd be like, hey, happy birthday. You know, what are you doing today? This is the Facebook era, right? Mm -hmm. This is different now. But even so, when when I know somebody's birthday is coming up, right? Or a friend's birthday, right? I put it into my calendar and make sure that I have it saved sort of forever because it's important to me and it's important. It's the biggest day of the year for them. So definitely birthdays are like critical, you know? But yeah, it's a constant reaching out and being in contact, right? I mean, when I wake up in the morning and and see text messages, I'm constant conversation going on. And there's all different things that people need to celebrate, especially in LA with entertainment. There's the launching of a new album or a new show or movie. Keeping an eye on everything is really important. Um, We're very meticulous, especially with our friends of like what they have upcoming and how we can help type thing. Yeah, there's no right way to do it. My brain fortunately works in a great way where I'm able to keep track of a lot of these things. Um, But also my calendar is really important. And, you know, looking back on former events and last year and different birthdays and if they go well and all of those things go into account. So there's no right way to do it or a real recipe. I am a firm believer in writing as much down as possible. The more notes you have, the more efficient you'll be. So I do my best to put everything, you know, in my calendar that's important. Doing good work is important, but everyone needs a big break. For photographer Daryl Ann, that big break came in the form of a repost from LeBron James. I keep saying the word crazy because I really don't know how else to explain it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was uh, around the time I started with Lakers Nation. I had started, like I said, around the time Lonzo got drafted. So obviously there was like two or three years where it, it was kind of tough. Like they were losing a lot of games and you know, out of nowhere, LeBron came here and I was just excited as everyone else. And at the time, I didn't realize, oh, you're about to shoot LeBron and on the Lakers. To me, it was just like, oh, he's coming to the Lakers. That's going to be a crazy thing. But I didn't even think about like the whole shooting aspect. So once he got here, I was just super excited to get on the court and, you know, just witness everything that he was doing. And so I started shooting that season that was the same season I think he got injured. And then he went, or when he came back from that, he went to a practice. And that's something that I had shot usually. I usually went to all the practices. And so I remember seeing him back on the court and I was like, oh, he, he must be coming back soon. So I started taking pictures while everyone was shooting videos of the interviews. And then I just remember leaving that, heading home. But like right before I headed home, I just posted the pictures real quick on Instagram, drove home, which was like a two hour drive. So I wanted to I wanted to make sure I got the pictures off before I headed home. And then by the time I had got home, he had reposted the pictures and then he also credited me in the caption. And this was like... I think I was probably at like 7,000 followers at the time. Overnight, I think after he had done that, I think I got to like 20,000. Wow. And just that whole like weekend, I just didn't know what to do. My phone was going crazy. And I remember people were calling to like write articles on me. There was like actually an article written on me. And I was just, I had no idea how that happened. Even to this day, I'm not even sure because he usually tags people. It just was weird to see him like put photo credit, put my Instagram and it, it was it was so easily accessible for people who saw it to just go straight to my Instagram. And it was so crazy. And um, at the time, I just didn't know what it really meant for my career. So I was excited. But at the same time, everything was going so wild on Instagram that I, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really know what to do. Um, but I think to this day, I feel like that's the way that Clutch also found my page was mm-hmm. from that. 
I never really asked anyone. I didn't, I didn't want to figure out what they like saw to like find out my work, but I think it might've been that because around that time after, I think that's when they had reached out and, and asked if I wanted to join Clutch. It was around after that. We'll get back to stargazing in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife, Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful designed objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son, Evan, continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. Working in the orbit of NBA players requires a special sort of knowledge. Trayvon Edwards is now a podcaster for The Athletic, among other roles he plays. But back in the day, he was an entourage member for two different NBA players, Brandon Jennings and Marcus Williams. Trey explains the specific rules for what it takes to be a successful member of an entourage. So for the entourage, your friend money is not your money. Make a life of your own because it's going to be an expiration date. You know, you might not look at it. It's inevitable. You know, in a situation of like, oh, no, nah, we locked in. You might have kids, start a family. You can't live with them. The wife might say no. Come to the table with something. Don't just be hanging around. And probably the last thing for the entourage, protect them. When I say protect the money, protect the person who makes the money. And that's crucial. That means if they intoxicated, make sure y'all get an Uber. Make sure y'all got a driver. If you're in a place and there's an altercation or some situation, you got to be the fall guy. I'm not promoting any of no bad stuff, but you have to protect the money. It comes with it. It is what it is. You know what I mean? Like they should never end up in headlines ever, ever. For those who work with NBA players, there's almost always more to the job than the job they were hired for. Christian Bowman is a personal chef who has worked for NBA superstars like Jimmy Butler and Kyrie Irving. Bowman learned that his role as a chef required a particular mindset and personality. As a private chef, you're in these different homes and like you really have to, you know, they really have to tr put trust in you because it's a very intimate job. You know, you're hearing different conversations, you're seeing different things. Um, athletes, they go through, they're regular people. They go through things just like we go through things. So it was like you, you get to see all of that. So we definitely grew over time man. we, you know, we took trips together. Um, we've, we've talked about a lot of different things where it came to just life, family. And as you're working with somebody, you kind of grow that bond and you get closer to them. Like I'm, I'm, I'm working with you every day. I'm waking up in the morning with you. I'm probably the first one that you see when you wake up because I'm cooking breakfast. So whether you're sad, whether you're happy, whether you're glad, you know, I'm the first person you talk to. So you're almost um, like a therapist. Exactly. For real. So you definitely build that bond. It's more than just cooking. Like you're dealing with a lot of other different aspects of this job and this career. Everyone, whether they're a chef or a trainer or an entourage member, all of them are looking to be successful. But as Ronnie 2K lays out, you have to be prepared for that success and the potential blowback that comes with it. I mean, ultimately, 
the NBA players are competitive on and off the court, right? So, like, I know for a fact, because I've talked to a lot of them, that they talk about this number, which honestly doesn't mean a lot because it's dynamic and can change with an individual's performance for over a week or whatever the stretch of time is that Mm -hmm. justifies a ratings change. That is totally within their control. However, in the locker room, you know that people are saying, this guy at your position has two points better than you at your position and he's not as good as you, you're going to get mad about that because you're <laughs> inherently you're, you're competitive. So I think that that conversation is super awesome for us. Um, and it's always fun to watch these guys like just get so frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like the, the other thing that I will say is like, there are no 99s in mm-hmm. 2k22 um, there haven't been any 99s for a while, and it's because we have historical players and we have to like put them over the course of time. But I think that like, in their minds, they're like, the top 100 players should have a 90 plus. But it's really like the top 15 players yeah. have, have, a, have a 90 plus. So like, if you think about it scale-wise, I, anytime I show somebody a list of the top 20 players, they're like, oh, that's pretty accurate. Like, that, like if you see them like, just juxtaposition by their by their ranking, just sorted by their order. You're like, oh, maybe I have a problem with one or two of these guys. But for the most part, this looks accurate, right? Mm-hmm. The top four guys are, not surprisingly, Steph, LeBron, Giannis, and KD, right? Mm-hmm. That I think everybody would agree that those are the should be the four guys. Where you put them, that's the great thing about the conversation, right? Like, let people argue that. Let them, let those four guys argue that. You saw LeBron talk about those two needing to be 99s um with the probably with the site that he wanted to be 99 <laughs> yeah. but um i think that that's the it's a great thing that people have that conversation that they do care it is competitive amongst the locker room but it is fascinating that like it doesn't affect their paycheck whatsoever right mm-hmm. like you make an all nba team that affects your paycheck you make you know, you can be a super two. Having a ninety plus rating in two K does not give you super two status. It, it, yeah. But you would think maybe, it would. Maybe you guys way. should add that into yeah. the, the next CBA. <laughs> next CBA. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, they treat it that way, which is which is pretty cool. But I mean, I, I will say one more thing: if you're an NBA player, you you get drafted, having played this video game your whole life. I mentioned that earlier, right? Mm-hmm. It's been a dream for you to be in the NBA, obviously. You've worked really hard for that. But it's also been a dream for you to be in, in this game. And like a lot of those guys tell me, like when they get drafted, they're like, 1A, 1B. Be in the NBA, be in a video game, be in NBA 2K. And to, to have a platform where they care that much to participate in our game is, is really extraordinary. But I get it. Like They played it their whole lives. It's just like me, right? I love sports so much and now i get to work in the sports industry what a thrill it's the same thing for these nba players reaching the pinnacle of your profession brings with it some incredible access vince the barber was able to parlay his connections into cutting hair for some of the most famous people in the world an intimate setting to learn more about these people you know again i'm blessed to be able to do that and um, provide for these guys and them actually appreciating my work how did you link with HBO and Uninterrupted for the shop? I know you were cutting Mav Carter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, be, before you, you link with them, but uh, you've been one of the few barbers that they've used on the show. And uh, how did that all go down with, with, with you getting with them? Um, with that, yeah. So like it, it goes back to cutting Mav, and I got introduced to Mav from Omar. I don't know if you know Omar Johnson. He used to be VP of Beats, and he's really good friends with you know Mav, Braun, just that whole click and um i was cutting omar for a while and then he introduced me to mav and then i was cutting mav for years before he even made the move out here 
and then it was all-star weekend toronto they 2016 me, right yeah, yeah they hit me up and was like yo we're about to film the show you know it's a, we're filming a pilot called the shop and i was like all right cool like what you know they're like yeah we want you to be on it we're gonna get takes place in toronto all-star weekend i was like yeah hell yeah i'm down so we came out there and we did we filmed like for like almost a whole day and we had all these different people in there and like at first we didn't know what to expect i'm just thinking it's just you know just just to shoot for all-star weekend and then it became a thing every all-star weekend we were shooting episodes 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 and then i think they were just airing it on on uh uninterrupted and then it finally got picked up hbo picked it up and our first episode we shot for hbo was um all-star weekend here in la and um so it was it was, it was like a regular thing every year all-star weekend we were shooting no matter you know every year it's been like that the only time we didn't was covid but yeah so once it got picked up um we just started shooting a, a whole lot more you know we'll shoot out here we'll shoot in new york we shot in miami we shot dc like we shot everywhere wherever i guess they could pull the talent that they want for that episode um but man it's been a blessing to just be able to you know meet some of these legends that have been on the show and cut some of the legends and yeah i mean i'm, I'm blessed to to be a part of that whole thing you cut the the late Chadwick Boseman's hair and you've posted about what that meant to you on, on Instagram and you know, what did that opportunity mean to you and what do you remember from that shoot? Um, I mean, the crazy thing is like, I was, you know, obviously a fan of the movie and a fan of him as an actor. And even at that time, I mean, as you could tell, like not everyone even knew uh, that he was fighting it, you know, fighting that sickness and going through all that and just meeting him um because usually how it works is like we don't know who we're cutting until like we show up on set type of thing and um when he was like yeah i want to get cut and then production was like yeah vince we're gonna have you cut chadwick i was like oh dope like that's sick so beforehand like you know we meet them and i kind of just ask them like yeah you know how do you want your hair like you know the do's and don'ts and yeah we're just chopping it up with him he's like super super down to earth like cool as hell and just sharing that moment like and just hearing the things he was saying, you know, and then next thing you know, he passes and you're just like, damn, you know, and just like, again, then you revert back to that episode and hearing the things he was saying and how he was saying it was just like, you could kind of see or like hear a little bit of like what he's trying to preach out to the world type of thing. And I felt, you know, again, I'm just blessed to be able to share, have a moment like that with him. So, you know, rest in peace to him. And yeah, it was it kind of gave me the chills, you know, once, once I heard that he passed and just having that moment with him. And it's crazy because I contacted our director on the shop and I was like, Hey man, during that episode, if you watch the episode, there wasn't much footage of me cutting him. It was just like blurred out in the back. And I was asking him like, you know, it'd be a big deal if I could get some footage of that or photos or something, you know, to like cherish that moment. And he's like, yeah, man, I got you. And he sent me a whole bunch of stuff and, you know, I'm about to blow up a nice picture of me cutting him. And I was able to get, you know, good photo. Like, I didn't even know what, what photos they captured. And the ones that they did, I was like, damn, of us smiling and like shaking hands. And I was like, damn, that's dope. And from everyone we spoke to, the biggest key to success is never giving up. No matter how hard the road seems, fighting for what you believe in leads to something good. Rich Fresh is a living embodiment of that ideal. He went from homeless to a millionaire in one year. You know, it was beautiful, to be honest with you. I don't think I realized how beautiful it was until maybe like the last three weeks of it. But it, it, it really was. It was like a, um, there were so many people around 
prior to that. And with so much noise and distraction that you don't realize, like, why you're doing shit. Like, you don't, you don't pay attention to, like, the why or the beauty in what you do. Because there's so much shit going on. You got, oh, this party? Oh, this person? Oh, I'm pop, you know? And you don't stop and take time. And I, and, and I didn't slow down. So one day, boom, rock bottom. You don't have no choice but to slow down. And you move slower than you've ever moved. And you're more humble than you've ever been. And then God can actually come and talk to you. So the first few months was like really tough because, you know, no one wants to be in a shitty situation. So you feeling that that thing. I don't want to be in a shitty situation. It shouldn't be me. What was me? This is unfair. Who put me here? Whose fault is it aside from mine? And then after two months of that, like two consistent months of that, it was like, it's your fault. <laughs> Duh. The fuck? It's like, ah, moment. It's your fault. It's your fault. Here's how you're going to change it. And boom, and boom, boom. So at that point, it was beautiful because it's like, it's proof that, I don't think people realize like how powerful they are until they're put in a position to do something powerful. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And I think for me, I didn't realize my power because I would always, you know, if I fell on hard times, I hit someone up. Hey, can I crash on your couch? Can you help me out of my situation? It was always that. Hey, can you help me out? Hey, mom, can you loan me some money? Can someone get me out of my situation? This time, there was none of that. There was no couch. There was no money. There was no nothing. I couldn't ask anyone for shit. So it's like, damn, it's just you and God. And so coming out of that was like, you can do anything. You're invincible. You can do anything you fucking want to do. If you could do this from that, you turn $300 into a million dollars? Straight out of a shelter? Ain't nothing you can't do. That to me was like, it was the most amazing experience ever. That's it for this episode and the first season of Stargazing. I'd like to thank all of you for listening, as well as our seven guests this season, Vince the Barber, Ronnie 2K, Rich Fresh, Daryl Ann, Trey Edwards, Christian Bowman, and Milo Frank. You can listen to all of the episodes of Stargazing right here on The Athletic NBA Show and watch the full interviews on The Athletic's YouTube page. I'm Yovan Buha. Thank you guys for listening.